Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I love your pocket. This is gold. This The BOG fam, Bits of Gold fam, what is up? Hope everyone had a great weekend and is getting ready for an awesome week ahead. Super excited for this episode today. Today, my guest is Joseph William Foster, Joe Foster. He was born in 1935 in Bolton, England, with the same birthday, 18th May, as his grandfather, also Joseph William Foster, who had died 18 months earlier. Joe's grandfather was the founder of J.W. Foster & Sons Athletic Shoes, and the inventor of the spiked running shoe and the trainer sneaker. Joe and his late brother Jeff were born into the J.W. Foster and family business. But on their return after two years away from home on national service, they asked questions to their family. The year was 1955, and the brothers saw a business still rooted in the 1930s. They saw lots of problems with the business, and they wanted to make some change. Their father and uncle were now operating the business, and very much like another sports shoe company, They spent more time feuding than collaborating. The result was that in 1958, Joe and Jeff left the Foster business to set up a new sports shoe company. I'm sure you have all heard of it. The brothers founded Mercury Sports Footwear, which after 18 months changed its name to Reebok. Joe had been advised to protect their company's name by registering it. By 1965, Joe was on his way to the NSGA, National Sporting Goods of America show in Chicago which was the start of many global adventures and experiences that after 15 years brought him together with Paul Fireman and later many stars of film and television. As a surviving founder of Reebok, Joe still welcomes the opportunity to travel and recount those early stories from startups to taking the company to a $4 billion business, overtaking Adidas and Nike to become the world's number one sports brand. Obviously, all of you have heard of Reebok, you know of Reebok, Joe has an incredible story, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. In this episode, we dive into much of his story. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am so excited to have you on the Bits of Gold podcast to share your story, share how you built your dream life, and just share the incredible journey thus far. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Danny, for inviting me. It really is good. I'm sure we'll enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on. So I know that you're in your your uh, your home now, your hometown. I like your office. What's the shoe and the left of you there? The shoe? Are you a Formula One fan? I've watched it before. That shoe is uh, Lewis Hamilton's shoe. Lewis Hamilton, he has eight world championships. I think it's eight world championships. He just missed out this, this last uh, season, but he was sponsored by Reebok. Um, we've got to go back a bit now. Probably 10 years ago, we were sponsored by Reebok. And this shoe has been signed by him. So I've got a signed shoe from, uh, from Lewis Hamilton. We'll jump into it on, on this episode today. You have a ton of stories that are incredible. But for your home office, hanging some memorabilia with the Reebok brand, I'm sure it's difficult choosing what goes up on your wall. Well, to be honest, we do travel an awful lot. And since we travel and we move an awful lot, most of my memorabilia now is in Boston. 
the Reebok headquarters because there they can keep it the right temperature. They can keep it so that it doesn't get lost. And because when we move around such a lot, things do get lost. So uh, one or two things we, we have, and we're collecting it all the time, but we prefer it in the, in the archive in Boston. In the headquarters, there's a pretty large display of some of the historic memorabilia, etc. Well, they have an archive. And the archive, of course, is temperature controlled and uh, light controlled so that none of the uh, old Reebok memorabilia has got to be preserved. And it's better there. Oh, that's amazing. So with, with climate control. Thing. Got it. I'm trying to think how long ago, but I went to the Reebok. I used to uh, be involved in a, a small startup. We sold uh, sports equipment in, in uh, the mixed martial arts space, and I'm no longer involved in that business today. But when Reebok was working with the UFC, we went there to discuss some of the equipment. And I remember going to the facility and it was amazing. And obviously Reebok still at that time, especially was like so big into CrossFit. And I remember seeing there were so many people were working out when we went to the headquarters. <laughs> oh, yes. Was that the big one at Canton? Uh, yes. Because now they've, they've sold that one and they moved into the city at the dry dock. They're the dry dock oh, in, yes. right, in, right in the middle of, the, uh, of Boston, which is not as glamorous as where they were in Canton. It's much more, say, much more useful in terms of employment. Getting the people out to Canton was a bit more difficult. I remember everyone was working out, and my partner at the time, you we were like, wow, this would, be a, this would be a cool place to work. There was the basketball court, the CrossFit gym, and we were like, this is such a cool place. So I want to take this one back and would love to share like the founding story of Reebok and how it all comes about. Okay. Let me start with my grandfather. Really, my grandfather. He didn't start Reebok, but he started J.W. Foster and & Sons. And if you'd have been living 100 years ago, and if you'd been an athlete, you would have found that Joe Foster, which is my grandfather, but Joe Foster, he was also called Joe. You would have thought of him as probably the leader and the biggest sports footwear manufacturer globally. He really started the craze. In fact, he in 1890, he was only 15 years old. And in uh, 1895, he's the pioneer of, a lot of people say he invented the spike running shoe because he, uh, he was a member of his local club. And his grandfather, his grandfather was a cobbler. But being a cobbler, he didn't just repair street shoes. He also repaired cricket boots. Are you familiar with cricket? Yes. Well, cricket boots had just had spikes in the bottom. And my grandfather must have said to his grandfather, why have they got spikes in the bottom? And we can only assume that the answer was it gives them grip. So this gave him the idea that, well, when he was running there, instead of running and slipping about, if he put some spikes in the bottom of his shoes, that would help him. And it did. It gave him the grip. And from being usually sort of middle of the field runner, he became a very unlikely second on his first time out with his shoes. So, of course, he ended up, well, what do you do? Everybody's looking at him, wondering whether he's cheating. Well, no, he made them all shoes. So that was okay. He probably faced a, a good beating up if he, if he didn't because he was wearing these uh, special shoes. So that started his business, J.W. Foster. And by 1904, he had three world records broken in his shoes. 1908, the London Olympics, he got gold medals. So this was the type of thing. But in those days, the Olympics was just track and field. And social media wasn't here. So not many people really understood or would hear about him unless you were actually an athlete and you picked up information about athletics. But during the second decade of uh, the 20th century, we had World War I. Because nobody wanted running shoes in World War I, so they repaired army boots. But then we get to the 20s, the 1920s, and that was my grandfather's, that was his decade. Have you heard of Chariots of Fire, a film? 
film Chariots of Fire, Van Gallis music. Yes. Well, there were three runners there that were really immortalized by this film. One was Eric Little, another one was Harold Abrahams, and the third one was Lord Burley. They all won gold medals during the 20s, Amsterdam and Paris, and they wore Joe Foster's shoes. He made their shoes. So they got their gold medals wearing my grandfather's shoes. Unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1933, young age, just 53, and I wasn't born until 1935. By chance, I was born on his birthday. Wow. So my grandmother, my grandmother insisted that I brought my name with me. So that's why I was called Joe as well. So my grandfather's Joe Foster. I'm Joe Foster. I'm born in 1935. So that's, that's my beginning. That's the beginning where I arrived. And four years after I arrived, 1939, we had World War II. So my upbringing was during war years until I was 10. And at 10, the lights came on again, and we could all get educated. And uh, so we all got educated, and I went to college, but I joined the family business, which by then, my father and uncle, they were running the business. And I joined at 17, 18 years, I had to go to do national service. And national service, that's two years. The thing about that is it took you away from home. Mother's no longer making you food or doing your washing, and you have to look after yourself. Jeff and myself, my brother, we both went at the same time. When we came back, we came back to see a failing company. J.W. Foster's were a failing company, and that inspired us. After a couple of years, we needed to leave and set up our own company, which eventually became Reebok. It's really interesting to hear you say, so just going backwards for a second, when your grandpa was building the business, originally it was a track shoe and it evolved into the business during World War I actually evolved into repurposing army boots. Well, they, they had to do that because during, during World War I, nobody wanted running shoes. World War I, the, the whole of Europe, of course, closed down. Nobody wanted running shoes in those times. So that they had to think what to do next. So it was repairing army boots. And those army boots were coming back from France, from Flanders. And my father had a story about that. They used to have to scrub all the mud off the boots. And the mud was more, more red than brown. Of course, it was a very bloody war. And these boots were just covered more in, in blood than in mud. But I think that might have been a bit of an exaggerated story he was telling us. It's definitely interesting to hear because obviously, you know, the last two years, a year and a half with COVID, it's been interesting to see the businesses that have come out of this you know, obviously, it's been a difficult time for a lot of companies, but equally, it's been interesting to see how companies have pivoted and really, in many cases, pivoted and maybe created a new division or a new form in their own business to continue to accelerate their own growth. It's been a big challenge, you know, and what we're talking on these, these Zooms, or you've got Squadcast, these things, this didn't exist, hardly existed before COVID. COVID has really brought this forward 10 years. So now, you know, I can speak to you in Florida. This is great. You know, it's just like being across the table. So technology really has moved on in leaps and bounds. And if you've been in technology, I think those companies, uh, they've really grown. Absolutely. So when you came back after serving in the military, the family business is going through some challenges. It was your dad and your uncle running the business at that point? My dad and uncle, yes. There were five years difference between them. They were five years apart in age, and they just did not get on together. They were feuding. They used to fight. They didn't speak to each other. They sort of swore at each other. And, and that doesn't do a business any good. You know, you're 50-50 in a business and you don't get on. And when we came back, we saw the damage it was doing because the business wasn't moving up. 
So I know that you and your brother go off to start what ultimately becomes Reebok. But what was the most challenging part of navigating that? I mean, was it complex with your dad and your uncle saying, hey, we're going to go and start our own business? Or I'm sure that didn't just come with ease. Well, we spent some time. We spent a couple of years trying to persuade them to work together. That, you know, you've got to change this company around. And my father, all he could say is, look, when your uncle's gone and when I'm gone, this business will be yours and you can do what you like with it. And I said, well, come on, Dad. You know, number one, we don't want you to go. You know, that's not the plan. Not for you to go. But this company, this company will be dead long before you are. Now, maybe having gone through two world wars and, you know, age at that time, I think my father, mind you, he was only in his late 50s. He wasn't really old. But the fact that they couldn't get on together, they couldn't get on with his, his brother. They didn't work together. You know, Addy Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they couldn't work together either. So Rudy left and he set up Puma. Addy Dassler, of course, we all know Addy Dassler. But the Foster family, no, they preferred to keep feuding. They didn't see that this was just totally damaging the business. But possibly at that age, it was just saying, well, we're earning a living. We'll just do that. And that's fine. You know, we, we're no ambition to take it anywhere. And, you know, we were the next generation. Jeff and I were the next generation. And we were saying, look, we're in our early 20s. You can't see the family business, the business that you're in. You can't see this go completely because what do we do once this business collapses and dies? In fact, I think it was only just over two years after Jeff and I did leave the business that the, uh, it did collapse. It did just go. There was no business there. So what we saw was absolutely happening. Sounds like you know you were working at it for some time to get your dad and your uncle on the same page. But what was it like, I guess, when you said, hey, we're going off on our own? I remember very well walking into the office because we hadn't made any impression on, on my father. And my uncle, we very rarely spoke to anyway. And we planned it. We'd got ourselves a small building. Or I say a small building. It was a rather large building, but we couldn't use much of it. And you know, we were all set to go. And I remember on that Friday walking into the office and saying to my father, well, I'm sorry, but we've not been able to persuade you to change. So Jeff and myself, we're leaving. And there was no response from my father at first. He did turn around and said, you're leaving? Yeah, yeah, we're leaving. And he actually picked up a, a letter opener and he got up and started walking towards me. And I wondered, what was he doing? But he turned it around and he gave it to me and he said, stab me now. You know, he's <laughs> like, no, this is not what it's about. That, this is not what it's about. It's about the fact that we have to do something different. But it took a couple of years for him to get over it. But eventually, he did. But we walked out at that point, And it was, uh, I suppose, in a way, he was in us. Did he ever join what would become Reebok? Or then you kept the family separate, aside from your brother? We kept separate. When the factory closed down, the Jade Boot Foster factory closed down, he just shut it down. And he just opened a small sports shop and just traded as a small sports shop. He never came together. He did. He did once jokingly say, "Well, why don't we? Uh, why, why don't we sort of open something separate and call it Fuzzbock?" But we said, "No, thank you. Reebok is great. <laughs> Fuzzbock is not." So you and your brother leave. You decide you're going to go out on your own and do this. Do your own business. Where do you guys start? We decided we didn't want to be in the same town, so we moved. We moved six miles down the road into a another town. Town was called Berry, and it was part of, it was sort of one end of the footwear industry in Lancashire, where we were, the northwest of England. The Rossendale Valley was known for making shoes. Berry was just on the edge of the Rossendale Valley. So that meant we, we were able to get people to work for us better. 
Bolton wasn't known for as a shoe area at all. We moved to Bury and uh, we called ourselves, our new company was Mercury Sports Footwear. So that was our new name. We had the winged messenger as our logo and uh, we were quite happy. And we didn't compete with Foster's because we started to make cycle shoes as against athletic shoes. We made cycle shoes and we did quite nicely. Eventually, we, we got into running, mainly because Jeff, my brother, he was part of the athletics uh, club, the Berry Club. He was, he was an athlete. He liked running. I didn't. I played badminton. He was a runner, and he was also a cyclist. So we decided to do cycle shoes. Well, we'd have a, an event which was quite unusual because we, at Foster's, they didn't have any representatives, didn't have anybody out on the road. They, they really did, didn't do any marketing. And the only selling they did was advertising in Athletics Weekly. And I think another one, Rugby World, because we made rugby boots as well. But, you know, you need, you need to get closer to your market, and they didn't. So we started to get closer to the market, and soon we got into athletic shoes because a lot of athletes used to come to our small factory and buy shoes off us. When you were first starting Mercury, where did your confidence come from from building the business? Was it just that you had worked a little bit in the family business? And what were your ambitions then? Was it just to be in this category? Did you have big ambitions to build a, a worldwide global brand? What was your, your, your mindset then around building the business? I've always been a, a, an optimist. I'm very optimistic and it's all a matter about the future and let's get on with it. You know, we, we could surely do better than this. But, you know, initially you're working for a company that's going down and you can see it going down. So we didn't want to do that. You know, we, we wanted to do something. You have a dream. Okay, you can dream about being the number one and probably... In those early days, Adidas, Adidas were a big company to us, really big company. And, you know, we wanted to compete. We wanted to be out there and do something. And, you know, it was our future. There was no future with uh, Jade Wu Fosters. We wanted a future. We knew we had to go out and do it ourselves. So, you know, that was the motivation. And I was 23, Jeff was 25. What can go wrong? You know, what can go wrong? You're young. And if it goes wrong, eh, no, it can't go wrong. You know, young, naive, just ready to go out there and have a go. Why were you so driven? It sounds like, you know, you, you were ready to take on Adidas and build this business as big as you could build it. Where did that drive come from? I guess to some, some extent, it's, it's in your DNA that you, you know, you're, you're an adventure. You want to do things. You know, even at uh, Foster's, when we're still at Foster's, we're always trying to say, come on, you know, we, we can do something better here. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Nobody wanted to listen. And when we left, Jeff was probably not as driven as I was because Jeff loved the factory. He just wanted to make shoes. He looked after the factory. We both worked in the factory for the first couple of years. But as we grew, Jeff wanted to just look after the factory. And he said, Joe, you do everything else. You go and do the selling, designing and whatever it is, and the advertising. So that became my job. And of course, you, you can always see that something better. You can you can make something better. You can improve things. So we're always looking to say, well, what can we improve? And in the northwest of England, it's very wet, very wet. It's where we are now. <laughs> and it rains a lot. So the ground is different. So we, we were making shoes like fell running shoes. Fell running shoes where you run up almost a mountain and run down the other side. And cross-country shoes, different shoes. So we had a nice specialist marketer. We also, I don't know if you know about rugby. Rugby is a bit like American football. We made rugby's, And again, it was a, a northwest of England or a north of England game. So we had some specialized markets and we could take those markets. Adidas couldn't get into those markets in those days. So we had a market, but I knew we had to grow. 
and to grow, we had to start challenging people like Adidas. So the challenge was out there. And yeah, I don't know. You must be the same. You must want to develop whatever you're doing now and take it to a, the next level. And what is the next level? So you'd be thinking of what's the next level, you know? Yeah, of course. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> you know, we're all dreamers. You know, if you're an optimist, you're a dreamer and you can dream that this is going to be the best podcast that anybody and everybody wants to, wants to listen to. And you get the right people on. So, you know, it's the same drive. You've got to be looking to where can I take this? And that was the same with the, with the then Mercury, which very soon became Reebok. You know, you face challenges. As you say, well, when you do this, we didn't know we were going to face challenges. We thought, you know, we know how to make some shoes and we know where to sell them. We're only 18 months into our little business, our Mercury business, when our accountant, he thought we were doing very nicely. And so we should, we should register our name. And we said, well, why do, you, why do you need to do that? Well, he said, you're doing well. And if other people see you're doing well, they might also want to start making Mercury Sports shoes. And at that point, you're going to have a problem because uh, you can't let somebody take your name. But we found we couldn't register the name. Somebody else had it registered. We had to change. How did you end up landing on the Reebok name from Mercury to Reebok? Well, the, uh, since we found out we couldn't change, we, we couldn't use Mercury. I was told to go and see a patent agent in Manchester, which is a big city near to where we are. I went to see a patent agent, and uh, I'm sitting in his in his office, and the, the window was open. And uh, he said, "If you you know, if you've got to change your name, because the people who have the name they were not using it, but they offered it to us for a thousand pounds. Now we didn't have a thousand pounds. We just set up a whole factory for two hundred and fifty pounds." I mean, we, we are going back to the 1950s, so it's, it's a long time back. So £1,000 out of our reach altogether. So I say he pointed through the window and he said, you want a name like that? And that was Kodak. And I said, well, what's with Kodak? And he said, well, they invented the name. They made it up. So it's their name. Nobody can take it. They just registered that name and that's it. So bring me 10 names. 10 names? You know, why can't you just bring your name in one? Well, you've got to go to the register and the registrar We'll check this. And the chances are that every time you bring me a name, there might be a problem. So bring me 10. And if we get 10, one of those will probably come out and be okay. Well, you go back and you think, we're sitting around the table. You know, I went back, Jeff, myself, wives. We're sitting around there. <sighs> think of 10 names. Cougar. How about Cougar? Yeah, Cougar Sport. That'd be good. Yeah. Falcon. Falcon, that'd be a nice name for sports football. Let me take you back to 1943. This is in the middle of World War II, and everything's dark, everything's right. just like COVID. We couldn't go anywhere because the war was on, but we had local events. I won a 60-yard race. I did have Foster Spikes on at the time, which was an advantage, but I won the race, and I went up to collect my prize. What did I get? A dictionary. And I was saying, come on, guys, I'm eight years old. Where's the football? You know, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was an American dictionary. It was a Webster's Dictionary. And quite a lot of spellings in the Webster's or the American Dictionaries are different from an English Dictionary, from the Oxford English Dictionary. Anyway, back to 1960, and we're thinking of names. My dictionary sat there next to me, and I think, I like the letter R. It's a strong letter for me, R, right. So I pick up my dictionary, open it at R. And very soon, I'm flicking through, and I come across R, W-E-B-O-K. What's that? It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. That's it. Top of the list. I'd have been looking at an English dictionary. The spelling would have been R-H-E-B-O-K. 
which I don't think would have been anything like as interesting as our WBOK. So I may not have missed uh, so My American dictionary did pay me off at that time. I was pleased I'd got the dictionary and not the football. Is the dictionary in the, the archive at the headquarters? We searched for the dictionary for a long time. But when you think that I had this, I still had it in 1960. But by the time we got to Boston, I'm afraid it had, uh, it had been lost. We did try to get, get the similar copy because I, I can still see the, the book, a nice sort of a grayish blue cover. But we searched quite, quite some time to try and find this uh, Webster's Dictionary. We, we, never, we never managed to find all of them. It was a shame, but there you are. How soon into launching the business did you realize that, hey, we're, we're onto something here? Oh, it, it took a long while. <laughs> it wasn't that quick. We grew nicely after we changed our name. We're four years into our business when we got a letter from Adidas. And Adidas, because we, we had our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar. And Adidas claimed that that infringed their three stripes. Well, Adidas were big, you know, and we had sort of, oh, we had to change our name. All right, okay. Now, what do we do with this? Adidas were too big to take them on and say, no, 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 no. It's not infringing anything. It took us about five minutes of worrying about it. and. Then we said, well, Adidas know we're here. Adidas, they're sending us letters. Wow, fantastic. We pinned that up on the wall. It stayed on the wall for a long time. That letter, yes. <laughs> so we changed our, our silhouette, and we changed it to what is now, you see, possibly see it on the, it's the arrow at the side there. I think we call it the vector now. So we changed it to the vector, which was a better looking shoe. We already thought, yeah, that, that, that's more distinctive. Our two stripes and our T-bar, well, okay, but this is more distinctive. These are the sort of things that we had to experience. But those experiences, those challenges, if you look at them, it teaches you that, you know, if you look really at a problem, try to change it into an advantage. Look around. How can we, how can we make something out of this challenge? And I think we, got, we ended up with a better name, and I think we ended up with a better silhouette. So, you know, and we're, we're growing. And what Foster's didn't do, they didn't go to the sports stores. They didn't do anything like that. I got in my car and decided I'd go and visit the store, the sports shops. And I would go in there and say, I'm Reebok. And the, the buyer, he would probably say, who probably owned the, the shop as well, and he was saying, I like, I like, your, uh, like your product, but uh, look, I've got Adidas, and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Hmm. Why did he need Reebok? He didn't. didn't need Reebok. We used to go to athletics meetings, and we would sell out of the back of the car. And I'd see all these athletes, and I'm thinking, they're my customers. The retail, that, that sports shop is not my customer. These are my customers. And in those days, all athletic clubs were all part of the three A's, of Amateur Athletic Association in those days. And the three A's produced a handbook. There were about 400 running clubs in, in the UK. And I got the, the name of the secretary and his address of all these 400 clubs. Well, what do I do? I write a letter. I offer 15% off. And if anybody wants to become an agent, they can become an agent and they can get the 15%. My first letter, I got over 100 agents. So now I'm dealing direct with these clubs. My second letter, I think I got another 50 agents on top. We eventually ended up with over 200. So we were selling direct to all the clubs in the country. That gave us a little bit of an edge because we became known as the running shoe people. Who do you get your running shoes off? Reebok. They're the people. So we were only a smallish company, but I'm sure we were, we were sort of uh, fighting above our weight. We were really punching above our weight, and, but we were growing, and that was good. When you got that letter four years in from Adidas about changing the logo, you pinned it up on the wall, 
being like a competitive person, did that motivate you to, hey, we're we're coming for you, Adidas. One day we're going to be just as big or bigger. Did that change anything for you and your mentality of building the business? Well, you a guess, yes. I mean, like I say, for a few minutes, we just thought, oh, then we thought, wow, they know we're here. Yes. What can we do? Well, we we did what we needed to. We didn't bother about that. We just changed things and moved forward. And I think this is it with problems. You know, change, move forward. Was there a moment prior to that or like before the four-year mark where a failure or a moment or something that happened in the business where where you thought about quitting, shelving the business or pivoting or anything like that or not quite? Like It sounds like almost it was kind of a slow and steady race for quite some time and just slowly building the business. Well, in those days, we didn't have social media. We didn't have mobile cell phones. So communication was through advertising, advertising in what we had, Athletics Weekly, Cycling Magazine, Rugby, and also visiting athletic meetings. So we knew we could uh, continue to grow. You just had to be willing to put yourself in there 100% and just just keep going. Was there a time when we felt that we should give up? I don't think ever. I think it was a matter that, no, this is just another challenge. Whatever it is, this is just another challenge. And, I mean, we didn't. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Have much money in those days. And I do remember that we, we actually ran out of leather. We would no leather to, to make our shoes. So Jeffy had a scooter. We got on the scooter and we drove to, well, it was Leeds, and about 40 miles to go and collect some leather and, and come back on the scooter. You know, we, we, we'd do anything, whatever it took. That was it. Okay, we need some leather. We'll go and get some leather. I think it was that if you've got something and you need to do it, you, you look at what is the problem with no leather? Let's go and get some leather because we needed it. And so we're, we're quite willing. Shut the shop, shut the works, close the door, and go and get some leather. And I think that happened all along. Whatever you need to do, look at it, analyze it, and just go for it. So, yes, it was a slow growth. It was slow burn in those early days. I wanted to get to America because Foster's had been making, in the good days, they were making 200 pairs of shoes a month for Yale University. We had a guy called Frank Ryan and another, Bob Jinjak, and they were coaches at Yale University. I think Frank Ryan was also a mild champion in America. So I knew the business was there. Every college, every university has coach, and coach is a god certainly then in America, and you could get a scholarship to go to university in America, a sports scholarship. You could do that. You couldn't do that in England. So we knew the big market was America. And it's 19, I've got around to 1968, and I'm reading a magazine, and the British government, they were encouraging people to export. And they said that they would pay for a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago, 
national sporting goods. They'll pay for a stand. They'd also pay for our return airfare and half of our hotel costs. So I'm off to America, 1968. That was my first, we say, my first visit to America. And I'm trying to get into the market. When did I get into the market? When did we get that foothold? 1979. When 1968, 11 years later, I get my foothold in America. I think people call it resilient. Yeah, I'm sure um, people always talk about overnight success, overnight success. But, you know, it took 11 years, I guess, for you to enter the U.S. market. And it's never an overnight success. No, a lot of hard work has to go in to get to that position. I had at least at least six failures in trying to get into the market, at least six attempts, different people. One of them, I actually spent four years trying to get into the market with, uh, with a guy in Philadelphia. You know, we tried for four years to break in. You need luck in this life. And the luck was for us. We were into running and late 60s, about 68, 69, running started to become a category in America. And throughout the 70s, it grew tremendously. And Nike grew with it. And of course, also Runner's World. I don't know if you remember Runner's World. Runner's World was a magazine. It started off as a single A4 page and it grew. By 1975, Runner's World was a big, glossy magazine. And they were telling you, the results of races, where the next races were, showing you all the products. And Bob Anderson, who was a publisher of this uh, Runner's World, he decided that uh, his magazine was so important that he could tell people which was the best shoe to buy for running. And so he told them the best shoe, the number one shoe, it was a Nike shoe. I don't know whether it was Tailwinds, whatever it was, it was a Nike shoe. Phil Knight, he's producing his shoes in Japan. And all of a sudden, you know, America, 360 million people, We'll say 10%, 36 million has started taking up running by then. And maybe 10% of those, we'll say three and a half, three point six million people looked at this number one shoe and said, I want it. How do you turn up the wick that quick? How you couldn't turn on. Phil Knight couldn't turn on for that demand. Twelve months later, Bob Anderson changes the number one shoe because he's selling his magazine. So he changes it to another shoe, which was probably New Balance or something like that. Of course, the, the retail trade in America, the, uh, the sports stores in America were absolutely wild because the shoes were just about starting to come in from Nike when Bob Anderson changes the number one. So those shoes now are not wanted. They all want the new New Balance shoe. It, it only happened for two years. And then I think Bob Anderson must have got the message. And so he changed it from giving somebody a number one, a number two, a number three to star ratings. So if you had a five-star shoe, and there could be four or five five-star shoes. That was a good shoe. You know you would sell. So they had five-star, four-star, three-star. And I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew that. That was our business. We, we knew we could make a five-star shoe. So we, uh, we set about doing that. And we came up with our shoe, Aztec. Aztec was part of a range. We called it the gold range. We had Inca. Inca was a spike. And we had Midas. Midas was a racing shoe, a road racing shoe. Aztec was the training shoe. And we tested these out and we got some nice gold medals out of the Edmonton uh, Commonwealth Games in Edmonton. We got some very good results, a lot of gold medals. But uh, really, we wanted to sell the training shoe because that's the big seller. And so in 1979, in February, I was there at the NSGA show and I had my shoe. Okay, the shoe edition of uh, Runner's World, that wouldn't be out until June or February. I'm showing my shoe. and. Kmart. Kmart came around and said, okay, we want 25,000 pairs. Now, we're a small factory back <laughs> in England. We knew that 
if we got a five-star shoe and we knew what to do to get one, we would need help. A friend of mine, he worked for Barter. He was doing a sports division. And Barter were the biggest shoe company in the world at that time. And they said, if you get a five-star shoe and you want help, we'll help you. Then Kmart said, yeah, well, but we need a better price. That was pretty obvious to me then. We needed to go to the Far East. South Korea, in fact, we needed mm. that. Again, we knew that if people were asking for a better price, we knew South Korea and we knew some people, we'd contacted them. So so we got that covered. So we knew that if it worked, that's fine. But I'm thinking 25,000 pairs came up. They, they were purely and simply on numbers. And if they don't sell enough of our shoes out of that first 25,000 pairs in that right time frame, that would be our last order for 25,000 pairs. So a bit of a dilemma. But whilst I'm still there in, uh, in Chicago, along came Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman, he was running Boston Camping. Boston Camping was a small wholesale company, tents, fishing rods, all the stuff you would need, hunting and fishing. Smallish company. But they, with his brother and his brother-in-law, they'd been running that company for about 10 years. And I could tell Paul was rather tired of doing the same thing. I don't think the company had expanded over the last five years. They just kept doing the same thing as a wholesaler. And Paul said, John, I'd love to be your distributor. He said, but you need a five-star shoe. That if you have a five-star shoe, I said, Paul, come and have a look at Aztec. Sure, him Aztec. Great, great shoe. But it's not a five-star shoe. I said, it will be. I'm sure it's going to be in June. Okay, he said, if you get five stars, I'm your man. Okay, there's quite a few months between February and, and July. And uh, I went, after going back to the UK, I went over to see Paul. And I actually went to see Kmart as well. But I went to see Paul. Nice little outfit. Great. And everybody's happy with this. Last day or last week in June, this is when the magazine comes out. And I phoned Paul. I said, Paul, can you go down to the kiosk, the local kiosk, and see if you've got Runner's World? One hour later, he came back. And he said, Joe, Aztec, five stars. Fantastic. I'm your man. But not only that, Inca and Midas, they also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes and a footprint in America. Wow, that's amazing. Prior to that, were you doing business in, in the U.S. or not yet? You were just there trying to get your foot in the door. Well, the first time I went, they loved it. They loved the shoes. Well, where do we get these from? And I'm saying England. And they're saying, that New England? No, 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 not New England. <laughs> Across the water. Oh, is that near London? Yeah, near London. Yes. Oh, right. Well... When you get somebody over here, when we can buy them here in America, we'd love to try your shoes. That was the message that I was getting. That We needed a distribution, a warehouse. We needed product in the States, and then we would sell. Mm. And that took 11 years. Prior to coming to the U.S., how big was the business? Relatively small. Probably in, in dollar terms, probably something like 2 or $3 million, that's all. But even back then, you know, it was a, it was a good, good business, but we were very small. How does Paul actually get involved? He starts distributing. He, What's his role in, in starting to help build Reebok in the U.S.? Once we got our five stars, there was a, a demand. People wanted to buy the product. And uh, so it was all a question of being able to supply. And we did get a supply from uh, through Barter, that I said. They they started making. Because Paul, Paul was suddenly inundated with orders. You know, I am Reebok, and this was it. And it wasn't really until the following February, February of 1980, that Paul was able to go as Reebok to the NSGA show and promote the product. But by then, 
the demand was rising because we were in, we got a five-star shoe. Once we got that, that was the hook. We got the hook. Instead of us trying to push to get the shoe in, there was this big pulling our shoe. People wanted it. Just like Phil Knight had when, when he, he was number one, but he couldn't get his shoes in. It took a while. It took us a while to get to, to get them moving. But once once we got in there, yes, uh, we covered the whole country, and that was uh, that was great. How much did the business grow from when you weren't in the U.S. to the following year once you entered the U.S.? Did it double? Did it triple? We doubled our business um, as soon as we were in the U.S. and and we we then started manufacturing in uh, in South Korea. So we got the right price. You know, the Korean product was good, really first class. We couldn't make them better in our factory. They were really good uh, product. So yes, we started to grow. Did you ultimately close that, your factory? We retained the factory for as long, well, for quite some time, mainly because there's a lot of small quantity shoes. If you're in athletics, javelin boots, people who just throw the javelin, specialist boots like javelin boots, or even hammer throwing shoes or discus shoes. These are small runs, which we could do in a small factory. You know, the large factories in Korea, they didn't want to know a run of about 50 pairs of shoes. So if we could keep our small factory doing special products. So we kept that. But of course, the big, uh, the volume was now coming from South Korea. Ronnie didn't really make it for a Reebok. We were going nicely. It was, was a guy, Arjo Martinez. He was down in Los Angeles. And he, he was a tech rep. And, you know, the tech rep goes into the stores and shows the salespeople, this is, these are the good points of the shoe. These are what you should be saying when somebody comes in and selling Reebok. And so he was a tech rep down there. His wife, Frankie, she was going to aerobic classes. And uh, she's coming back. She's full of it. Her and her friends were going down there and into these classes. And they were absolutely full of this. So uh, Arnold said, what are you doing? What is aerobics? And she said, well, we're exercising to music. Arnold said, can I come down to the next next class you go to? Well, yeah, why not? So he did. And what did he see? He saw the instructor wearing a pair of sneakers, and he saw half the class wearing a pair of sneakers, and the other half, they didn't wear any shoes at all. And that was a light bulb moment for Arnold. He said, he's thinking, why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics? He got on the red eye from L.A. up to Boston and went to see Paul, Paul Feynman. Oh. There's a great new thing happening down in Los Angeles. These girls, we should make a shoe special for them. Paul said, Paul Fine said, whoa, 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 we're a running company. Arnold, we're a running company. And we're doing very nicely. Yeah, but no bumps. You know, why should we be making dancing shoes? If it takes off, then we'll probably get into it. Arnold wasn't satisfied. Arnold, he went round to the back door and he had a word with Steve Liggett. Steve was our production man at that point. I had a word with Steve, Steve. Can you get me 200 pairs of shoes? You know, make them this way. Make them out of glove leather, nice sole, Reebok with the Union Jack on the side. He must have been very persuasive because he got his shoes from, uh, from Steve. And he, he handed them out. He handed them out to uh, the instructors and the girls. One problem. problem is it was made, they were made from glove leather. If you're not into leather, glove leather is very, very thin. And you can tear it just like a piece of paper. And this is what happened to the shoes. The shoes started falling apart after about four or five weeks. But, you know, we're talking about Los Angeles. We're talking about the United States. The disposable income of the girls there, they just love the shoes. So they fell apart. They went out and bought a new pair of shoes. But we managed to cure that problem. 
instead of using glove leather, we use garment leather, and garment leather's that bit stronger. So we have, we have garment leather. And then you've got Jane Fonda. She went out and bought a pair of Reebok freestyles and used them in her videos, her exercise videos, and the whole thing just grew. At that point, we're a $9 million business, $9 million. The year after, we were $30 million. The year after that, $90 million. The year after that, $300 million. And then $900 million. In five years, we went up to nearly $1 billion. And that growth was absolutely phenomenal, absolutely. And then you know, I was traveling around the world, putting on different markets. So I put on another, thir- after getting Paul in, uh, in America, I put on another 30 markets around the world. So I was traveling around the world. That's amazing. I retired. We were uh, end of 1989. We were doing close on 4 billion revenue. We were number one. We'd overtaken Adidas. We'd overtaken Nike. And we were the number one global brand. But at that time, we'd become corporate. You know, we had a lot of lawyers and we had a lot of accountants and a lot of people in between doing a lot of work. So uh, I decided time to get off this traveling around the world. I mean, every, everywhere I went, I was picked up by a limousine, driven to the finest hotel in town. and We went to the best restaurants. But all we did was talk about uh, Reebok. I wasn't selling them. It was just corporate. I, what I was doing, of course, I was hosting uh, the, a pro-celebrity tennis tournament in Monte Carlo. And uh, this was in aid of the Princess Grace Foundation. And we just got everybody. We got Frank Sinatra, John Forsyth, Linda Evans, all the A-listers in Hollywood. They, they were all coming, all happy to come to Monte Carlo to play tennis and uh, enjoy. Was it difficult transition out of the business for you? Was that, was that a difficult transition? Because so much of your life is eat, sleep, Reebok. I did transition out of it, and uh, I, I know for six months I was wondering, where's, where's the next plane ticket? You know, why, why am I not flying? It's like a bit of adrenaline. It gets in, and you think, you know. But they didn't leave me alone, put it this way. The, that, that phone was ringing. I decided to go to Tenerife and relax and, you know, take some time off. But the phone kept on ringing, like, Joe, what did we do? We'd grown so fast that, Joe, what's this? I was always getting the call. How do you balance your personal life and, and your business life? Was there some sort of balance or, you know, was it really like all day, all night, Reebok, Reebok, Reebok? Not all day, but it's most of it. The thing is when Reebok calls, it's like having two families. You've got to be in love with your brand. And if there's something needed for Reebok, you've got to go. It has to happen. Cause some sort of tensions in your family. Certainly, I was never at home on my son's birthday. I was always at the NSJ show because his birthday was in February, the same time as the NSJ show. I brought him toys back from America, which probably not many of the kids in the northwest of England were seeing. But um, no, there's big tensions there. You've got two families. And unless your family can come with you and want to come along with you and participate in it, it does cause tensions. And I think that's, that's the payoff. You know, my wife was quite happy when we were going to Monte Carlo and entertaining all these A-listers, she was very happy with that. (laughs) Those were the good times. But of course, it's not always good times. A lot of these things are difficult journeys. But it depends how you you look at it. If you're full of the energy and you want to do it, and you've got that ambition, we can go better. We can go bigger. But we grew that fast. That uh, was amazing to become number one. 
people say when you're first starting out a business, get a customer, get 10 customers, get 100 customers and grow from there. Some people say, you know, getting that first like one to three million is the most challenging because it's finding product market fit. Other people say going from 10 to 50 million or 50 to 100 million is more challenging. And then some people say it's just different problems. In your case, what would you say was the more challenging phase of building the business? I think the most challenging phase was in the early days. In the early days, when you're trying to get people to understand that you've got a product, you know, when, when you go places and you say, I, I'm Reebok, and the, the answer is, who's Reebok? You know, who? Reebok? Never heard of you. Those are the challenging times when you've got to persuade people to take the product. Building that. And I think we were quite fortunate, the fact that we went direct to our customer. So we, we were dealing direct with athletes. And uh, I, I think even Phil Knight had that in his early days. He was, he was working out of his garage. To begin with, he was selling Tiger, which is, it is now ASICS. But it's that early, getting those early days over, I think that was the, the most difficult time. The rest, like you say, are just different problems. You've accomplished so much in, in your professional life in terms of building this iconic, legendary brand. What are you most excited about now? What, what gets you out of bed today? Uh, my book, writing Shoemaker. Shoemaker, the book, you can see it behind me. That's it. I guess the challenge now is to get that to a bestseller in the States. You know, we want it to be a bestseller in the USA and around the world. So the challenge is now is to, is to get the sales for the book. And that gets me out. And it's amazing right now. Almost every day we've got a podcast. We're speaking to a university or whatever it is. It's now turned out to be a business book. <laughs> and people are learning the lessons that well they're reading about the lessons we learned in growing the business so yeah that's what gets us uh, gets us going these days and, and we, we are going we're going places it you know we just come back from well we went to in dubai where we uh, were asked to attend a tech show really for, for new businesses so i was speaking there and we're off to uh, to mexico city because we're launching the the book in uh, spanish so there's a, there's a lot of things to do. It's amazing. Yeah, a lot of things to do. So that's what that's what keeps us going now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure the book will, you know, inspire, teach many people. I enjoyed reading reading it and taking lessons away and learning more about your your personal story. If you were to start Reebok all over again, I'm curious, is there anything that you would fundamentally change about your work or the process of building the business or everything sort of played out the way it played out and you know you would do things exactly the same way? We became number one. We overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike. You know, when you think of it that way, what's to change? You know, we became number one. So it's difficult to sort of say what we change. The only thing is I'd like to change, of course, is my, my brother, unfortunately, he died just when we got into America. Uh, he didn't see the growth and he didn't, he didn't enjoy the pleasure of seeing Reebok become the world number one. But you can't change that, you know. Those are the things that are something you, you, know, you, you wish those things would, would have been different. But as far as the business, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, absolutely. What do, you, what do you think your brother would say? I'm even curious what do you think your grandpa would say, knowing you know what, what the business ultimately, ultimately became? I'm pretty sure they'd be amazed. I often think of the fact that had Reebok not become what it did become, but my grandfather's business, because he, he must have been a real genius in his day to grow a business that, that he did. When you don't have the mediums that we have, the social media that we have, way of moving around he didn't have those things and yet he was uh, he was bringing people into the country from america to run in his meetings that he was putting on 
So he was quite a genius to be able to get what he did. But nobody would have known or heard of J.W. Foster. And I don't know, but now now that the brand has been bought by uh, Authentic Brands Group, Adidas have sold it to them. I get a feeling we're going to see an awful lot of changes and that Reebok is going to become really a number one again. And I wouldn't bet against the brand of J.W. Foster becoming a brand in America that looks back on that history and uh, starts to become a, a real prestigious brand. So, you know, it's exciting. I'm curious with, with your brother, after your brother died, was there anything that fundamentally changed in terms of the way that you viewed life as it relates to managing or building both a business and building your personal life? Uh, you know, I know loss can certainly impact the way you perceive the world or view the world. I think that when my brother died, it was a very, very sad moment and a, re- a real shock to us all. But I think what it did do for me is it made me more determined, made me more determined to make sure that we met our objectives. And our objective, first one, was to get into America and to be competitive. And we did more than that. You know, we did more than that. We became a number one. He would have been thrilled. My grandfather would have been thrilled. And my father would have been thrilled because he didn't see it. My mother, she lived long enough to see us uh, become a big company. But uh, I think, like you say, what would grandfather have thought of all this? Well, we'll never know. But I'm sure he would have been really proud of what happened and the fact that we became you know, so global. It's really amazing to, you know, to, to hear how your grandpa first invented the shoe at 15 years old and obviously knowing how the story plays out. It's truly fascinating. Is there a brand you know, similar that's, that's in its infancy that you look at that you say, oh, you could be the next Reebok or you see that as potential to grow that, you, that you're following or that you're really fond of? I think there are a number of brands out there, but I think it's tough now. I think it's tough because uh, we're, we're into a technical age and technology is determining how, how things move along. When we started, it, you know, things were not that technical. It was straightforward shoemaking. Now, uh, you know, we, we see the, uh, the advantage now that, that technology brings, which means really you've got to be able to invest. You've got to be able to invest in that technology to take people with you. There's a lot of brands out there that are, are making, making inroads because they're different, they're new, and there's quite a few brands. Any one in particular? I don't think there's any one in particular. I think it's still, it's still Adidas, Nike, you know, Under Armour are pretty good these days, New Balance, but they're all relatively big companies now. To think who's starting out, I'm sure there's somebody. There's somebody out there starting out doing something different. And I get a lot of people now, since writing the book, I get a lot of people with bringing new technologies to me and saying, you know, what do you think okay, do, would Reborn like this? I mean, some of these ideas are fantastic. And, and, and you can see them making, uh, making a, a visible difference, you know, whoever takes them on. So it is technology which is, which is moving this. So starting off, I think you can start anywhere and I think you can make, an, uh, you know, you can make a difference or make an impression. And, and it's always worth. Then you need that luck. You've got to have that luck. What is it that's going to be different that's going to just move things your way? It's hard to say. We had our luck. We had a, a lot of luck. You know, aerobics, we were lucky with that. Running, growing at the time when we were growing. We were there at the right time. You know, this is incredible. But as I say with luck, you know, if you're around long enough, you keep at it and you work harder, you do get lucky. And opportunity, and it's not necessarily in, uh, in making relationship, but opportunity is there. 
you've grasped an opportunity to do podcasts. Yeah, it's a question. A lot of people see this, but do they do they grasp it? Sometimes opportunity just passes people by, and they don't see it, and it's too late. So you've got to be willing to take that risk and see beyond the the early stages. Yeah, this is going to be big. Yeah, it doesn't always work, but if you don't try, <laughs> you don't get. And you've got to be there fairly early. Yeah, that all makes sense. We can start to wrap up the show. The Bits of Gold podcast is all about building your dream life, building a life you love. With that, we dove into a lot around business today. But what would you say or what would be your Bits of Gold and how to build a life you love? Oh, well, you've got to be in love with it. You've got to enjoy it. Whatever you go into, don't... Uh, well, you possibly can make a success out of something you don't enjoy, but that's tough. You've got to enjoy whatever you do. Do it because you enjoy it. You know, if you just go and do a nine to five job, that's tough. It's tough to get on in life. I, you know, I mean, I've always loved what I've, I've been doing. I always loved Reebok and, uh, and it still drives me. And I just feel that to go and work and do something that uh, you don't enjoy. So whatever you do, pick up on something that you have fun with, you can enjoy. And the sports industry, sports industry has never had a recession. It's always going like, I've been through about three or four recessions. Uh, when things have gone bad for But the sports industry has always grown. And the reason it's growing, of course, is that we're becoming, there's more automation. AI is coming in now. You're, you're seeing people who, instead of doing jobs that, that, that they're required to work with hands, now they've got robots. Yeah? So people have got more leisure time. This has been happening for many, many years. They're spending more time doing leisure. So the sports industry is growing and it's continuing to grow. It's continuing to grow massively. So uh, I think if you enjoy it, whatever it is, enjoy it. And you know, sticking around with something you don't enjoy is tough. Love it. Joe, where can people find you, connect with you, find the book, purchase the book? Where can people connect with you? They can get onto our website, which is jwfosterheritage.com, or they can buy the book to Amazon and lots of the stores are there. They can find us on all the media platforms. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reebok the Founder. Just need to put that in and you'll find you'll find us and find the book. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review. It really helps with getting the show out there and getting more people to learn about what we do here at Bits of Gold. Have an awesome week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.